Thank you. Now, oh, my dear, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear myself. I, I will speak very slowly because you have an accent which I might not understand. <laughs> People in Australia laugh at that, but when I speak in America, they don't laugh. In Texas, they say, we've got an accent. Yeah. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. I've never been in this part of your state before, but for the past uh, three days, I've been in other parts of wherever I am. Uh, <laughs> I've been in the country for, a bit over, for over two weeks and been in very different places. I, I'm saying of nothing of any significance at, at the moment. It's just so that you can get used to this accent which I inherited from my mother. I was interested, you know, when Stuart was making these, these uh, preliminary announcements about, you know, what to happen in the event of fire. Because when I was in Darlington, which is in Western Australia, it's not far from Perth, the, the priest there also made announcements. And he said, in the event of fire, you get into your car and you go as quickly as possible to McDonald's in the next town. But it was because they didn't in, expect, expect there'd be any internal combustion in the church, but they were in the middle of a forest which sometimes went on fire. And so it was a matter of getting out of the area as quickly as possible. But he never said anything about, well, he couldn't really, about going into a shopping mall and finding uh, food. What I was intrigued about was that, that uh, Stuart never encouraged people to go into Victoria's Secret. So... <laughs> So I think maybe I should go there because we don't have one of these in Glasgow. <laughs> now, what I'm going to do is slightly different from what might be uh, read from the, from the program or from the flyer. Uh, I could begin to talk and give examples of how change has happened in different churches, Anglican and Reformed and Catholic, from different parts of the world, uh, some which my colleagues and I have helped and some which have been at the initiation of other people. But then we'll get into talking about the nuts and bolts. And what I think is more responsible is that I lay out a kind of canvas of the broader picture about, how, about tradition itself, how we deal with it, <coughs> and um, about how we deal with change. And, uh, and then in the second time when I'm speaking, which is this afternoon, I'll be much more particular and give uh, examples. But I'm going to begin with you know, Stuart mentioned what would worship be like in, in 10 years' time here. So here's a possibility. It's the year 2029. It's the Afro-Indian, Southern Anabaptist, Anglican, Grey and Thespian, all-age and affirming parish of St. Roly-Poly and all asthmatics. <laughs> the main service today is at 9.30 in the evening, and it is a service of Holy Communion with Aromatherapy using revised right W as advised by the Myers-Briggs consultant. As the congregation gather, <coughs> the sanctuary is bathed with the sound of the mating signals of North Atlantic sperm whales, followed by the introit, He's Not Heavy, sung by the Weight Watchers Choir. <laughs> At 9.30 precisely, screens descend from the ceiling and the congregation is encouraged to do a series of aerobic exercises using wrists and ankles as the procession makes its way to the chancel. The celebrant disinfects the altar before sensing it, 
and the acolytes flick on a succession of rainbow-colored electric arches which are suspended from the ceiling all the way from the nave to the apse. While this pastor is dressed in a blue denim cassock, the worship leaders wear white silk shirts and scarlet velveteen trousers, this being Pentecost Sunday. <laughs> the Lord be with you, says the pastor. She's already here, responds the congregation. And then the, someone says, let those who wish to and aren't offended by the suggestion stand to sing. And as a synthesizer plays a succession of cascading chords, the cantor says, this song kind of came to me on Friday. I reckon it was meant for today. It's never been sung before, but if you like it, and I'm sure you will, you can get a copy of a recording which Carol and I made just yesterday. And because my computer is linked to the Sounds of Salvation printing press, we have full music editions for sale as you leave the church. It's evident from the, the introductory music and a display of electronic angels descending from the church roof was intended to synchronize with this announcement. What no one anticipated was the unexpected power cut. <laughs> well, that might not happen. Although at the end of what I'm uh, seeing this session, I'll give a, a, a different scenario of something which has happened. I want to suggest that, that it's helpful to distinguish between three things, habit and custom and tradition. And these, I suppose, are ranked in level of moral seriousness. A habit is usually a personal thing which it can be annoying or it can be very helpful. A custom is something which is also sometimes quite kind of personal but has no deeper value. But tradition is something which is handed down from one generation to another with the anticipation that it is worth replicating uh, or repeating. And I suppose a, a kind of easy comparison would be if you think of a, of a wedding, it might be, uh, from the point of view of the bridegroom, that it's his habit of wearing an attractive, now I don't know whether you call it waistcoat or vest, it's vest in America, it's waistcoat in Britain, I think it's waistcoat here, that's right. And he's used, you know, if it goes anywhere, wearing a kind of flashy red or green or blue. And people might be wondering, I wonder at the wedding when he's getting married, will he, will he follow his habit? And it's not a habit that the bride has or that her father has, it's just a personal habit. He sometimes wears a flashy waistcoat. Now, the bride might want to follow the, the uh, custom, at least in Britain, of being late. That having invited people to witness the wedding at 2.30, she might not arrive until 5 to 3. That's a kind of custom. It's not something which is laid in stone. It doesn't need to be followed. But people who believe in God also believe in good luck. So come late, and uh, that might make for a lucky marriage. But the tradition may well be that the bride... Uh, comes down the aisle on her father's arm. I mean, he'll have his legs and his head as well, but <laughs> his, his, his arm is there. And that he will come to the front and then let her go and she stands next to her husband-to-be. That's a tradition which has its origins way, way back in medieval Britain, if not medieval Europe. And the tradition may also be that the, that the groom and the bride face the priest or the pastor as they get married. They've invited people to witness their wedding, but all people see are their backsides. But that's the tradition, and many people keep to that. 
<clears throat> so there are three very different things entirely. And what we are dealing with today is that which has come from the past is handed on with the expectation that it is worth replicating, doing again in the future. We use the term tradition, at least in some of the liturgies of the church, when we refer to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, because it's from Paul that we find the words, the tradition which I hand on to you is that which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about what happened when Jesus uh, celebrated what we call the Last Supper. I find it an interesting thing that Paul says, this is what I received from the Lord Jesus Christ, because all that we know about his encounter with Jesus face to face was when he was blinded on the Emmaus Road. And I don't think that was the time when Jesus said to him, Paul, by the way, uh, just to let you know, because you weren't there, this is what happened on the Thursday night in which I was betrayed. I don't think that happened. I think that what Jesus had said was passed on to Paul through people who had been there, through the 12 disciples who had been present. And he takes that as a word from the Lord, which he will share with others. But it's only a partial uh, reenactment. He doesn't say where it happens. He doesn't say it happens in, in the up, upper room. He doesn't say that the meal should be preceded by a Passover in which there'll be herbs and lamb and other things. He just takes a portion of this. He doesn't mention that... Uh, uh, Judas was there. He doesn't mention that there was a foot washing before it. He only takes a part. So this tradition is actually a fairly kind of small part of a bigger context. And if you look at the tradition of the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, Holy Communion, in the Catholic and Anglican and Reformed churches, we do not know what Jesus did then. We do not do, rather, what Jesus did then, and we do not do what St. Paul said because there have been a whole range of additions. There was the threefold celebration of the Eucharist, the sevenfold celebration, the ninefold, as parts were added to it, which people thought were important. Now, because of the nature of my job, I work for an ecumenical community. I'm a part of a resource group which deals in the areas of worship and spirituality and social justice with three other people. We work in a whole lot of context. I work in Catholic churches, Baptist, uh, Pentecostal sometimes, uh, Presbyterian, uh, Anglican, so on. And particularly if I'm in an Anglican uh, church or a Presbyterian church, that's my origin, uh, people will say, now exactly what happens at the Eucharist? Oh, it's just the usual. Well, what is the usual? Because I've never been in two Anglican churches where the usual <laughs> is the same. So I have to say, okay, when we enter in, do we reverence the altar? Do we bow to the altar? Uh, when we get there, uh, do you sense the altar? Uh, do you uh, wash your hands beforehand? Uh, do you uh, distribute the bread and the wine from the front of the church or from the sides of the church? Do people kneel? Do they stand? Do you give a blessing to children? Do you ask those who uh, don't wish to receive to come and cross? The All of that is different. All of that is different. And I realized there were differences. The first time I celebrated in an Anglican church was in England. It was an ecumenical service. They were quite happy for me to use the rite or the, the, the liturgy which we use in the Iona community. And I'd never been before behind an Anglican altar before. And this was a church in which there were these kind of, you know, fairly precious sides people. 
So uh, I, I'd never experienced this before. Normally, when I celebrate the communion, there would just be me and some uh, elders. Well, this is very different. These, we were all arrayed in white, which is the color of my liturgical clothes in any case. But at any rate, um, we get to the celebration of communion, and um, I realize that I'm going to be uh, taking the cup. Someone else is taking the bread. And I'm thinking, you know, there's usually this kind of handkerchief that you kind of, you know. And this sidesman said, would you like a purificator? And I thought, mercy, what's that, you know? I said, no, 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 it's okay. So I'm, I'm all right. I thought it was... <laughs> so, so I'm going round and I'm thinking, where's that thing? And then I thought, well, maybe that's a purificator. Maybe that wipe is called a purificator. It'd be called other things within a more pedestrian, Presbyterian, Reformed tradition. But in my own tradition, I love saying to uh, Scottish Presbyterians, if I'm taking a conference, now, friends, would you just turn to each other and talk about, about the traditional way of celebrating the Lord's Supper in, in our church? And then people turn to each other, and before, you know, five minutes has gone past, voices are being raised, and people are almost punching each other. You know, somebody will say, well, it's the wee cubes of bread, which were alluded to earlier, and they are cut up on the Saturday night by the church officer's wife, and she puts them in the fridge in a plastic container to keep them fresh for the Sunday morning. And then she and her husband meticulously will pour little drops of wine into shot glasses, though they don't say shot glasses, into these small... <laughs> and that's how we do it. And somebody says, no, we don't. No, we've got a big goblet. We've got big goblets, and we pass them around. Oh, we don't do that. Oh, yes, we do. And then somebody else says, yeah, we have the big goblets, but we also have spoons. You would not believe this. We've also got spoons. And they're in the back of each seat. And when the goblet comes round, you take the spoon off and you take us up and then you pass it on. Now, this church has had to give this up for two reasons. One was that given that more people live longer and that some people develop Parkinson's or their handshake, it was as if fire, fire engines were going through the church. And also, if you've got limited agility, to be taking this and supping and passing on at the same time can lead to disaster. And then people say, and we've got whole meal. Oh, you wouldn't have wholemeal bread. Oh, no, 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 we can't have that. And then you discover that actually everything has changed and that although presumably John Knox intended it to be done one way, different churches, when there's been a, a change of leadership or when the church has splintered, different churches begin to do things in different ways. The one constant about tradition is that tradition changes. The one constant about tradition is that tradition changes. And this is what makes it, for some people, a rather kind of odd thing, or at least even to hear me saying this. But the fact that the traditions of celebrating the Eucharist, the tradition of celebrating is the same, the way in which it has done has changed through the centuries. And that's because some symbols or some places or some procedures have just been inadequate. In my uh, culture, we moved from uh, goblets to these small glasses because of the outbreak of cholera and also because people had moved from alcoholic wine to non-alcoholic wine. Alcoholic wine kills the germs. Non-alcoholic doesn't. So, if you're, so, so 
people move to these small glasses because they fear a spread of cholera if you use large unfermented wine in a goblet which you, or a chalice which you share. And so the tradition changes according to need and according to circumstances. If it didn't change, then we wouldn't be going to church, we'd be going to a museum. A museum is where you keep things from the past which have not to change in the future. And you look with some reverence or delight or some amusement at what people used to wear or what they used to do, how they used to act. But when we're in a church, we're dealing with a living God and no one and nothing which the living God touches remains the same. Now, you would know if Jesus had been in a town because some people who'd never seen would be gazing at the sky and the flowers, and some people who'd never heard would be listening to birdsong, and some people who'd never uh, been able to move would be leaping about. And some people would be in a corner plotting his demise because he dared to be part of the tradition but wanted to change it and make all things new. Now, people sometimes imagine that Jesus only had one attempt in his life, and that was the crucifixion there are at least five other attempts recorded in the Gospels. And on each occasion, it's because he's either reinterpreting the tradition or he's doing something to amend it, which people don't like. In his home synagogue, it's in Luke chapter 4, I think, the first time he preaches in his home church, which for any preacher is a kind of dangerous thing to do. Uh, years ago in Kilmarnock, Kilmarnock is my hometown, the only other man you might have met from Kilmarnock is called Johnny Walker. And he, he left a long time before me. And there's an, a church in the middle called the Leichert. The Leich is a, a Scottish word for low. It's just geographically low. And they were celebrating an anniversary and asked if I would come. Now, I'd never, I'd lived in the town until I was 18, but I'd never preached in that church. And I was a bit nervous because I thought some people might know my mother and father and I may have been at school with some people there. But it was a very warm atmosphere. It was a very generous church, you know, in lovely space, although it was a very old church. And uh, at the end of the service, I go to the door to shake hands with the congregation as they leave. And a woman comes up who was about the same age as my mother, and she shakes my hand but doesn't let go. And with her left index finger, she pokes me in the chest and says, I used to bath you. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't know what to say in response to that. It's time you did it again, sister. I don't think. <laughs> but Jesus goes to his home synagogue and people, people try to kill him. It's the second attempt in his life. The first time is Herod, who tries to kill this rival king who's an infant. And all that Jesus has done is to draw people's attention to something about God they'd never realized before. He tells two stories. You can find this in Luke's gospel. He doesn't come out with any revolutionary theology. He just reminds people that when there was a famine in Israel. It was not to Jewish widows that Elijah the prophet went. It was to a Syrian widow. And when there were lepers in Israel, many of them, it wasn't a Jewish leper who Elisha healed. It was a Syrian leper. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Jewish history. This is part of their history. But what Jesus is pointing out is that God loves more than those who believe they're the chosen people. And that, which was in the tradition, was not as they understood it. He points to a radical past, and people can't cope with that kind of God. They want a patron saint of their own type. And so they rise up 
and take him to the brow of the hill, fully intent and throwing him over. Tradition changes, and sometimes it changes for the better when we discover how it began. Let me take an ex a couple of examples. There's a, a, a passage somewhere, I think, oh, probably in the book of Numbers. It's, n it's not a book which Numbers of Leviticus. It's not exactly most people's bedtime reading. But there's a story at the end of one of these books of women who are called the daughters of Zelophehad. And these are five girls whose father uh, must have been a fairly wealthy man. He'd had no sons, he just had daughters, and he died. And the tradition, which was to some extent enforced by the law, was that if a man died and had no sons, his property went to his brothers. So these five daughters think, well, we have helped our father in the business, you know. He didn't ask for daughters, he got them. We didn't ask the girls, this is the way we were born. Now he has died, and now we're left at the mercy of our uncles to live on charity until we get a husband who can look after us. This is unfair. So they go to Moses, and they say, Moses, this is totally unfair, this old tradition. No, only the boys get the property if the old man dies. Totally unfair. So Moses doesn't want to deal with these women, so he goes for a quiet time with God, and he says, well, what am I going to do with these girls, five of them? They're no brothers, so you know, then the uncles get the property. And God says, change the law. Change the law. And so the tradition changes because circumstance demands it. And it's very interesting that that change happened probably about almost 2,800 years before in Great Britain we decided that if the queen and king had a daughter and also had sons after the daughter, it would be the daughter who could be the monarch. Because up until now, it's always been the first son who has been the monarch. Or I think of, you know, you, you'll know in your own experience that, um, and certainly it's this true of Britain, that, that uh, Mother's Day and Mothering Sunday, uh, which uh, in Britain were one, are still together. In Australia, they've come apart. I think it was sometime in the 19, 1934 or 36, 20, oh, 1905, the US began a Mother's Day. In 1924, Australia took it over. And some people had that as one thing and then gradually got separated. But the traditions of Mother's Day have changed. Having been here during your Mother's Day, all these shops are selling things that you should buy for your mother. Whereas the tradition was that you wore white flowers in honor of the person who was your mother. Moving from honoring the mother to giving gifts to the mother is the way in which that tradition has changed. And the way in which Christmas has changed is remarkable. People celebrate Christmas. There are all these traditions, but some of them are not that old, and some of them should never have been exported from Britain to Australia. All that stuff about snow, for goodness sake. Snow had fallen, snow and snow, snow and snow, a traditional carol. Oh, and the whole notion that we should have fir trees in the church and put fairy lights on them so kids don't know whether Santa Claus is Jesus' friend or whether, you know, he's a kind of accessory after the, the fact. If you go b far enough back in, in my country, we never celebrated Christmas until the beginning of the 20th century because Anglicans and also uh, Presbyterians would not celebrate a, 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 a date of Christ's birth which couldn't be verified. 
Easter was okay, that went with the Passover, the Jewish Passover, that was determined by the calendar. But who said that Jesus was born on the 25th of December? And so you don't get carols being sung, at least in the church, until the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century. And when I was an organist, when I was 14, the church I played in had no Christmas parties, had no evening service for Christmas, and, and largely avoided Christmas carols because you couldn't date it. Now, that, that tradition has changed rapidly through the 20th century. And America will possibly, you know, experience a change in tradition which will shake some people and bless others at Independence Day, because you may have read that although it has always been fireworks in the big mall, which is in the center of Washington, D.C., President Trump would like to change that tradition. He would like to put it at the Lincoln Memorial from which Martin Luther King spoke, with the possibility that he might address the nation, though whether he'll be as eloquent as Martin Luther King, we'll have to wait and see. And, and it's, I mean, for me, uh, looking at it, uh, it seems another, a, a move of self-aggrandizement. It's a, it's a totally egocentric move. People might think otherwise, but it seems to me it's focusing on him as the one who moves the tradition rather than on the tradition remaining the same. So traditions change. Traditions change. There are a couple of things which uh, I th are, are worthwhile perhaps pondering, and I've alluded to this uh, a moment ago. What, what's the origin, and, and is there something in the origin of the tradition which we might recapture? Now, here are some examples. The, the Lord's Supper, the Mass, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, did not happen in a church or a synagogue or a temple. It happened in an upstairs room. So when on the island of Iona, which is a small island off the west coast of Scotland, Columba landed there in 563 to evangelize Scotland and then had a mission which went all over Europe. But on that place, there's an abbey which the Benedictines built in the 10th century and it was destroyed by the Protestants in the 16th century and then rebuilt partly by my community in the 20th century. And when, about 30 years ago, we were beginning to think, how would we celebrate Monday, Thursday? How would we, how would we do it? Because hitherto, we always met in the church where Monday, Thursday was celebrated in front of the altar, and uh, anything that was responsible for Monday, Thursday was done there, and we left. And then we got to think, well, actually, the Last Supper was not celebrated in the church. It was celebrated in an upstairs room. And it happened that we have there a large hall, the refectory, where the monks ate, and that's where we eat. It's an upstairs room. And with a bit of difficulty, you can pack perhaps 150 people into it. And so very often that is where we have Monday, Thursday, the upstairs room. And then we remember that, you know, after that, Jesus is in the garden where he's betrayed. And just as you come down the stairs, you go into cloisters, a garden. So that might be an appropriate place for people to stand in total darkness and hear the story of the betrayal. And the other thing which we began to do was to go into the church, uh, which we hadn't celebrated the Eucharist in, where all the lights were on and all the candles lit, and then taking from an Anglican tradition, 
to stand at the back of the church and watch as all the lights are put out and we read Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from, from, from one side to the other until there is no light and then we leave in darkness and in silence. And for people who've never experienced that, who've always thought, well, it's just communion, but it's on a Thursday night, the location, the fact that we remember what happened afterwards, and this sense of Jesus and the world going into darkness are all enshrined in this new way of celebrating the tradition of Thursday evening Eucharist. On a Friday, uh, we do Stations of the Cross. It's not a Protestant thing, perhaps, but it's an ancient ritual within the Catholic Church of looking at the different stages of the journey that Jesus took. And we remember that while in Catholic churches particularly, there will be 14 or 16 stations around the wall and people can go around and look at the station and either use their rosary or, or pray at the stations. The Stations of the Cross remember an outside journey where Jesus went uh, through the streets of Jerusalem to Calvary. Now, the island of Iona is not a busy, bustling market city like Jerusalem, but we start uh, on the shore where the monks once were slaughtered by the Vikings, and then we go through the road that takes us up to the abbey. And we manage to find significance in different places and rather than having a, a, a priest leading the singing or leading the prayer, we invite people to prepare short meditations at each place. And I hadn't been there for three years. My colleagues have been doing this. And I was just stunned when we came to the station, which is about how Jesus says to the women of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for your children. And this this station took place in the graveyard. There's a small graveyard, a very ancient graveyard. And people would go through the graveyard door and two women stand on either side saying, weep not for me, but weep for your children. And however many people there were, I think there may have been a hundred people just gather when we do this, went through the graveyard. And as you went through the graveyard, every, maybe, maybe every five meters, there would be the dress of a little girl lying on top of a gravestone and a sign saying something like um, Jemima uh, abused by her father. And then you'd go somewhere else and it would say uh, Felicity trafficked as a child slave. And as you went through, there might have been 15 children who in different ways had been demeaned by the world and by its people. And then when you came to the front door of the small chapel where we gathered for prayer, this notion of weep for your children had become really quite profoundly embedded in us because you saw the way in which children all over the world were, mal were maltreated and you wanted to pray for them and you wanted to weep for them. So that's taking an ancient tradition and keeping the tradition but allowing it to have a new dimension by going back to the origin. It was an outside thing, Jesus' pilgrimage to Calvary. So we can do it outside as well. And people will gather whenever they see the cross going along the road or through the streets. And one of the, 
old traditions in all of our churches is that at one time we had no uh, musical instruments. We just sang. People are astounded when I sometimes suggest that we might sing without musical instruments. They think this will be a physical impossibility. You're doing musicians out of a job, Mr. Bell. Holy, 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 God of power and might. Holy, 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 God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, go down. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now there's no guitar or organ or drum even, but we've managed that. And that's how the church and its music began. Now this is not for a moment to dismiss praise bands or organs at all, but to say that, you know, if you're singing something meant for the human voice, then let the human voice sing it. If we become dominated by musical, instrumental sounds, sometimes people don't sing. And, you know, if once in a while people sing, I mean, a folk, a folk tune is a folk tune because people can sing it. It's not an aria from an opera by Donizetti. It's a tune that anybody can sing. So sometimes let it be sung unaccompanied. And people begin to find their voice. I do this all the time and try to say to people, when people sing without accompaniment, their confidence grows. If they're always dominated by instrumental sound, their, 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 their ability to sing becomes diminished. They think we need to be helped all the time. If we're not helped, we'll never manage it. But if it's a tune to which they know, yeah, okay. This is, a, this is not a radical departure. This is a tradition which was always in the church. And, you know, for some Anglicans who are bound to, or, to the organ, it's very interesting to remind them that one of the traditions in England in the Anglican church was you had an East Gallery choir facing the altar. And up there were people who played the 17th, 18th century equivalent of the oboe, the clarinet, the trombone. They would sometimes play in the pub. They sometimes would go around the streets playing carols, which would not be sung in the church, but sung outside but they were part of the establishment. That's an old tradition. We have instruments in church. Now, if people don't know that, what they believe is that tradition is only as old as their childhood. And what they saw then is where it all began. But to give the bigger context can be a very liberating thing. I'll take two, two well, just one more example. I mentioned that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed is the night in which he washed feet. Very few churches wash feet now. It's an ancient tradition. But I don't know if you're aware of the, the name Jean Vanier. He's a man who died last week, and he was the founder of the L'Arche community. And the L'Arche community has branches all over the world. There are some in Australia. It was set up by this French-Canadian who believed that people who were otherly gifted, people who were intellectually not as acute as, as others, people who were handicapped, should have their worth attested. I grew up in a town where if you had a Down syndrome child, you dressed him in grey or brown 
And people would say, it's a sin for these people. They've got a Mongol daughter or child. This is what people said. And John Vanier comes along and he says, never mind Mongol and never mind Down syndrome. This is Janice and this is Eric and this is Joseph. They've all got names. And when the Lash community, begun by a Roman Catholic, began to uh, be open to young people uh, of all traditions, the issue came up, well, how, how can they have communion? You know, the Catholic Church is fairly clear that not always can people uh, who are not Roman Catholics receive the Mass. Well, they could have, you know, argued with the Vatican or the local Catholic bishop, asked for dispensation, but they remembered this old tradition of foot washing, and so that's how they celebrate the sacrament. And a community like the Mennonites, who uh, are Anabaptists, fled from Germany and Russia under persecution to America, Canada, some went to Paraguay, some went to Holland. They also saw as a sacrament the foot washing because Jesus said, do this. So when we begin to explore the, the beginnings of our tradition, we might just find that there are radically different things there which we can reinstate in the present and which will be for the flourishing of the church. Although it might mean the tradition as we have received it as being reinterpreted in a much more radical way than before. But with this, with this change in tradition, with, uh, with changes in tradition, always comes an apprehension. And that is to say that for many people, and Christians are not exempt from this, but for many people, the word change just burgeons with fear. If ever you come to Scotland, a place not to go to between October and March is the county called Sutherland. Now, it's a funny name, Sutherland, for the most northerly county in Great Britain. And it's called Sutherland because it was the southern territory of the Vikings for whom Norway was the northern territory. The Norwegian Vikings, and indeed the Norwegian church, the Diocese of Trondheim, had the top of Scotland, all the islands, the Isle of Man and all of Ireland. That was all under the uh, stewardship or domination of the Norwegian Vikings at one time. And if you go there between uh, October and March, it's a low gray sky. It's not the most appealing landscape and people are just grizzled. I went there once to do some work with the BBC in February. I went with a colleague of mine. We had just arrived, we went into a shop in the town of Wick and this lady says, you're new here. I said, we are, 10 minutes. <laughs> do you like it? I says, we're just here for 10 minutes. She says, we've lived here all our lives and we don't like it. <laughs> it was the wrong time of year. And it was the wrong time of year to go with one of my colleagues, Christine, to do a workshop in Thurzo, which is uh, another of the small towns. Because the local churches had said, well, you come and do a workshop and change. Well, this is February. I mean, people hadn't seen the sun for about five months. And they arrived at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, and these people who looked as if they were bears with sore paws. And Christine said, she said, I don't think these people look happy. I think we should divide into, I'll take the women and you take the men. Well, she got the bargain. These men looked as if they stuck their tongue out of each other when, 
when they shaved in the morning. I mean, they just were very kind of morose and diffident. So to begin to talk about change, I mean, oh, no. So I, well, I begin to talk, and then this, this lovely old man called Archie said, he says, you know, I've been thinking about this issue of change. He says, actually, I have prayed about it. He said, because in our church, we could have a priest who says that she or he doesn't believe in the virgin birth. Nobody would bother. But if they move the altar six inches, oh. oh. I says, and why is that? He says, I don't know. I don't know. He says, but I keep, this thing keeps coming back into my mind. He says, it's a phrase in a hymn I learned when I was a child. I learned this too when I was a child. It's a nice hymn. It begins, abide with me. Verse 2 change and decay in all around I see. Now, says Archie, the church is the only place where I associate change with decay. He says, look at me, I've got, I think you call it a walker. It's a Zimmer frame in British. Is it a walker? He says, I've got this walker. He said, if I went to the doctor and the doctor said to me, Archie, we've got new tablets. If you take two of these three times a day, Next month, you'll be dancing. I'd never say, oh, doctor, doctor, change in decay, change in give me my old pills and I'll keep my walker. But within the church, this notion that change mean decay, means decay keeps kind of uh, coming in. And that's something which has to be contrasted because in every other area of our life, in education, in banking, in shopping, we do not do what we did 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Some change may be for the worse, some change may be for the good. But the tradition of shopping, of taking medicine, of going to a bank has changed. And you know, has the church to remain a museum which keeps religion the way it was? Or is the church going to be open sensibly to the transformation of its traditions? But some people, of course, you know, will will be resistant to change because for them, and this is not true of everybody, but for some people, the church is a place which is highly evocative in terms of their memory. Uh, one of my colleagues in a church in Glasgow uh, had a very narrow kind of chancel where the choir faced in, and there was just a little bit of space here, and then there was the congregation. And uh, his name was John, he had a whole host of children who began to come to church, and they would come out to the front, but they were ending up in the choir's legs, and it was kind of standing on the toes of the sopranos and altars. And John said to his elders in Presbyterian Church, are you okay with all these children coming? And the elders said, oh, it's great. We haven't had as many children for ages. And John says, and you're okay. Sometimes they come up and sing, or I'll do something. Oh, that's fantastic. Mr. Harvey, that's the best thing. It's great, it's great. He said, but there's not much room. At the, no, there's not much room at the front for all these children. So it'd be good to have some more space. Oh, that'd be a good idea. Uh-huh. So we'll just take out the two front pews. Oh, no, you'll not. <laughs> now, logically, logically, that was the thing to do. I mean, there are plenty of pews in that church. It could seat probably about 1,100 people. So taking out the front pew or two pews, no bother. Nobody sat in these front pews. And John didn't understand what this was about until he realized that previously they had a minister when all his elders were young, who was a well-loved minister. His name was Mr. Smelly, a rather unfortunate name, but that was what God, that's what his mother gave him. And Mr. Smelly, at that time, always had the children sitting in the front rows. 
And he'd look over and say, good morning, boys and girls. And they'd look up and say, good morning, Mr. Smelly. And for these men, that was part of the best days they had in the church. And to remove these pews was like taking a teddy bear from under their arm, but they didn't know the teddy bear was there until somebody started pulling it. So there is a kind of thing about how we are... Well, let me take another example uh, from an Anglican church in Northern Ireland where they had a, a new, a young uh, priest. He'd, he'd been a curate in a nearby parish and then he came to this parish. And on a Sunday when he arrived, he, he was thrilled uh, to be there. This first time now ordained and installed by the bishop. And he thanked people for... Uh, choosing him as their priest and those who had been present and had catered for his installation. And he said, you know, I look at us today and we're about 120 of us in this church. It's marvelous. But we're all sitting all over the place. So next Sunday, I'd really love if we all came and sat together. And he says this with kindness in his voice. Next Sunday, nobody moves. So he says it again. In fact, he says it twice more. Nobody changes their seat. And with you know, with incredible clarity of mind, he decides to take this no further. But he knows that he can trust an older lady in the congregation. And he says to her, do you know why people won't move to other seats? And she says, yes, some of them remember who used to be there. He says, really? She, she says, yes, remember, this is Northern Ireland, and some people have had to move so come All Saints, All Souls Weekend, this young priest who has never mentioned anything about moving seats says, I'm not going to preach today because I realized, and I never knew this when I came to this church, that this church is full of memories. For example, who was it who used to sit here? Now, he's not, he's not asking which book of the Bible people like reading best. He's asking a simple question. And, and three or four people say, oh, the Harrises. He says, so what is it with the Harrises? And they say, well, they had a farm and their sons didn't want to take on the farm, so they've moved to Galway in Southern Ireland. Uh, they moved five years ago. Oh, that's it. And what about this seat over here, which is empty? Oh, that was the, that was the McAndrews. Oh, really? And the McAndrews? And somebody says, well, Mr. McAndrew was in the, um, was in the police and uh, he was involved in fairly... Uh, significant movement against people in the IRA and his life was endangered. In fact, he got a note that he was under threat of being killed. So he and his wife and his family moved to Liverpool. And he's, he, he's, he knows what he's asking for and he knows people will respond. He does this four or five times. And then he says, uh, he says so this place is full of memory of people who once were here. He says, this is all saints, all souls tied I'm going to pray for these people and I'll ask you if you want to mention other names of people who once were here and we'll pray that whether they are on earth or whether they're in heaven, that they somehow know today that where they once sat, people will remember them and love them. And he does this. He lets people pray aloud and he has a lovely prayer to thank God for these saints who once had been here. And after the prayer, he says, do you think the Harrises would always want this seat to be empty? I think the McCandras would always want that to be vacant. Well, next Sunday, I'm going to just rope off the back six pews, and we'll all sit a bit closer. No objection. What he did was he dealt with the emotional impact of a change. He recognized what it was, and he let people, to some extent, kind of grieve 
just acknowledge where the pain came from. And once that had been dealt with, then people were able to move. But then we have, you know, there are two other things we've got to change. One is that, that people kind of will say, well, you know, God doesn't change. Oh, I've had this many times. Mr. Bell, Mr. Bell, listen. God is unchanging. We are made in God's image. So therefore, the body of Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the body of Christ, Mr. Bell, should not change. Amen. Well, if you know the story of Jonah, you know how uh, these people felt. Jonah is this man who God says, go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim doom because they're all at it. And Jonah thinks, well, a Mediterranean cruise would be highly preferable. I think I'll just go on this boat. And he's on the boat and uh, a storm arises and people think that somebody in this boat has done something wrong. Jonah says, I should be in Nineveh. They say, okay, on you go. Throw him into the sea, swallowed by a whale, sings in its stomach until the whale vomits and he gets put up in dry land, goes to Nineveh, proclaims doom and everyone changes. The, you know, people repent and they put sackcloth and ashes over them and over the very dogs in the town. And when God sees this, God decides that he'll not destroy the town. And Jonah is livid and says to God, what's the point of having a prophet pronouncing doom when you don't doom? <laughs> God has changed his mind. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we find time and time again, God saying, I relent or I repent of what I intended. God changes his mind. And therefore, he changes his action. And he always does that out of love. Now, let me give a very, you know, domestic analogy. There's a wee girl called Jacqueline, who every Wednesday goes to her Aunt Jane, her favorite aunt. She goes there for, for dinner at, at six o'clock. So she skips home from school. She's always there an hour early and she has a great time with her aunt, and then they have dinner. And this day, as she leaves school and she's going towards her aunt's house, she meets her Uncle Harry. And Harry wants to take her uh, for coffee, and she says, no, I, Uncle Harry, today I go to my Aunt Jane's, and she'll be waiting for me, so I'm just going to go there. I'll see you later. And Harry says, okay. But he takes from his wallet, and he gives her $3. And he says, there you are. You go and buy something nice. So she does. She goes and buys five bars of chocolate. And she comes into her Aunt Jane and she says, Aunt Jane, see what I've got. And she shows her Aunt Jane five bars of chocolate. And Jane says, well, that's very good, Jacqueline. I'm just going to take four of these because we're going to eat at six o'clock and I don't want you to spoil your appetite. And as she takes these five bars from this eight-year-old girl, she looks up at her aunt and says, you don't love me anymore. And the aunt for the moment feels judged by her niece of eight years. But the aunt knows that what seems like a change of mind is not a change of mind. Or rather, what seems like a change of mind has been caused because love demands that one day you give and the next day you withhold. Love enables us to, to, to treat our children differently. It's not favoritism. In my house, when I grew up, I had two brothers for my mother to get them out of their bed, she just said, it's half past seven. For me, she had to say, it's a quarter to eight. 
you know? This wasn't that she loved them less or more than she loved me, but love demands that sometimes you change your mind and you treat people in different ways. And God, all through the Scripture, changes his mind because love demands that seeing the good in this or that, the potential, then he will not destroy. And when Jesus comes along, his primary function is to change things. He, does, you know, he, does, he doesn't leave people who are diseased diseased. He changes them from ill health to good health. That's the purpose of God. When we pray, when we pray in church, particularly for others, we are praying in the expectation that a change will happen. We don't pray. And Lord, we pray for all those who are suffering from cancer. Uh, we like them just to continue suffering from cancer. We pray for them. We don't do that. We pray in the hope that through medical science, through the skill of, of surgeons and doctors, and through the prayer of the church and the Holy Spirit, a person will be changed from ill health to good health. This is part of prayer. The dynamic of the Holy Spirit is to make all things new and make some things different. Another thing about uh, dealing with change is that inevitably, when we change something, there are people who feel very uncomfortable because this means a change in their power or their importance. And I could give instance after instance of all through the church where people have felt, if this happens, I'm not going to be so, no, so significant. If, an organized, if people say that it's time this organization perhaps just closed, the person who's the treasurer and has been for 35 years and who's now past the capability of dealing with money, will not be willing to let it go because this is his place of importance. If you say to a choir, now, we don't, if, we, if we don't sing every Sunday, there's no need for us to sit together. We can sit together once a month. And the soprano, leading soprano, has been sitting in there since she was a child. This is, where she, this is where she should be. She should be right in the front of the congregation. Who is going to take that away from her for three weeks? And it seems petty, but we all in different ways find our feathers ruffled when a, when a change means that our comfort zone or our sense of importance, our profile in the community, or even our power is being challenged. I was in California, just north of San Diego, at a, a, a small, uh, well, there's not a small church, it's quite a big church, I had two pastors, and the female pastor had asked if I would come and spend a day with the congregation and preach on a Sunday. And uh, over the day, I never met her on the Saturday, and on the Sunday, I think I just said hello to her. I wondered why you know, we hadn't, I hadn't seen much of her. Her husband ran me to the, the station, and I said, uh, I'm really sorry I haven't seen much of your wife. I wanted to you know, speak to her and just thank her for bringing me here. Oh, he said, this is a very sad day for her. It's her last day in the congregation. I said, oh, I never knew that. She never indicated that. He, she, he said, no, it's, she's, she's had to go. I said, what do you mean had to go? She said, well, he said, well, she was, um, uh, there was a number of uh, men, six men who took her aside about a month ago and, and said that they prefer that she wasn't here and they offered her uh, a fairly substantial financial contribution to move elsewhere. And I said to her, said to him, were these men by any chance retired businessmen? He said, every one of them. They had a vacuum of power. 
They once had been able to tell people, do this, and they did that, go there, and they went. And now no longer in business. The church was the place where they exercised that power. They were used to telling people what to do, and they were not used to having a female over them to whom they were accountable. So they, behind the back of the senior pastor, who was an ex-Roman Catholic who didn't want women in the pulpit, they, behind his back, just arranged for her to go. Their power, their significance was being challenged by her presence. Well, there are three things which, to my mind, have to shape the way in which we think when we uh, indulge in anything to do with liturgy, changing it or leading it. And these three things come from my childhood pastor. Uh, I left this church when I was 14 to go to play the organ in another building. And when I was about 17 and I felt convinced that I was called by God to go into ministry, my father said, I, I think you should talk to Robert Allen, who was the name of my childhood minister. He was a lovely man. He was a very, uh, he was a great preacher, great at public prayer, very perceptive, a very humble man. And he said, he said uh, to me things which, I, which I've never forgotten. He says, if you're going to be involved in the worship of the church, you have to have three loves. You have to love God. Not, not to know about God. You can learn at a theological college. You can read the Bible, you know about God. But loving is different than knowing. Loving is about being passionate. Loving is about listening. Loving is about spending time with the beloved. It's not about knowing all the things about God. And you have to love God. And then he said, and you have to love people because they, they are the people who you serve and whom you represent. And, and loving people should be at the core of what you do in terms of liturgy and leading worship. I remember that on, uh, in, on Mother's Day last week because I'd once gone to an Anglican cathedral. I wouldn't name it in case people know the dean. This was in England, and it was, uh, it was Mothering Sunday, which is also in, in Britain, Mother's Day. And into the pulpit came this kind of senior canon who said, this morning it's Mothering Sunday. So today I'm going to speak to the mothers in the congregation. And those who are not mothers perhaps can just snooze. I thought, what does this mean if you're a woman who's been unable to conceive? Or what does this mean if you've never really wanted children? Or what does this mean if you're a man? Or you're single? And then, a month later, I was in Sydney. And it was Mothering Sunday. I decided I'd go to the first church which was near me. When I left, the, I heard this bell. I went into this church, a Catholic church. I looked at the bulletin, Mothering Sunday. I thought, oh, this will be worse than the Anglicans, the Catholics. And came this rather scrawny-looking Catholic priest, and he stood at the front. He said, I want to welcome you all here. If anyone has come here today because I'm going to be thinking that I'm going to speak about mothers, you've come to the wrong place. Today, we're not here to talk about mothers. We're here to remember we've all been mothered, some by our birth mothers, some by our foster mothers, some by our grandmothers, some by our fathers, and pray God we have all been mothered by the church. That's why we're here. I could have gone and kissed the man. <laughs> I thought there was somebody who loved people enough 
that he allowed this liturgy to be inclusive of everybody on a day in which it could have excluded a substantial number of people and perhaps um, made others feel uh, demeaned or forgotten. So I'm coming to the end, and I'm going to give another image of what might be in 2029, but this is something which happened. And I'm not, this is not a Sunday morning service, but it's thinking of liturgical space and doing something different. I have three great colleagues, and one of them who I've worked with for 35 years, I don't fully understand, uh, and I'm very glad. He's got a different mind from me. And I don't think he fully understands me, but we, we love each other, we work with each other, uh, and, and we've been blessed by each other. And we ha now have a, a woman called Jo, who's also one of the, the, the workers who go outside, outdoors, and our secretary is the fourth person. So Graham and Joe had been talking about we were going to lead a week in, in Iona Abbey. And they said, I think we, we, we maybe do something different. We always do a, a service on Wednesday night, which is usually a service of commitment. Maybe we, could, maybe we could instead have an installation in the church. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we could take a book of the Bible and allow people to use the space in different ways in order to, to, to reflect on the book of the Bible. I said, and what were you thinking of? And Joe said, well, we're thinking of the Song of Songs. I thought, really? I said, well, nobody ever reads it. You know, it's kind of, it's there in the Bible, but nobody bothers with it. So they had done quite a bit of thinking. You know, I was new to this, and I'm thinking, I don't know about the Song of Songs. And, and they said, Joe, Joe said, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's full of these symbols. It's all, you know, there's pomegranates and there's apples and grapes. So we could, we could, we could fill the, you know, we'll, we'll clear the place of chairs because it's very flexible. And we'll have wee places where people can take, eat pomegranates or apples or raisins. And there's incense mentioned. We can get plenty of incense all around the church. So that's the kind of environment. And she said, and, and if you look at it, it's like a play. There's a bride and there's a bridegroom and there's a, maybe a commentator and there's a, kind of, a group of people who speak as well. So we thought that in the nave, when it's clear, um, we could maybe just read this. We could have four different people reading it. We might manage it twice in an hour and people who have never heard it read like that, they would hear something new. And Graham says, and we, th we thought we would have a, maybe a wall where people could write their favorite love song, just the first line. I said, well, that'd be, that'd be very interesting, yeah. And, uh, and, and we might have, there's one of the side chapels, we thought that people could go, in, could go into the side chapel and, and sing songs of love in the side chapel, secular and sacred, just go in and start singing, whatever they like, people could join them. I said, yeah, and I said, it might be quite good also if there's something a little more kind of composed. Uh, I said, I, I could perhaps find poems of love from Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, other people, and I could put them in a, in a brochure, and then we've got the choir stalls, of, you know, there's room there for about 40. People, if they wanted, could just sit in the choir stalls and either read the Song of Songs or read, oh, they said, that's a great idea, that's a great idea. And then Graham said, and we were thinking that in the, in the, in the other side chapel, down at the bottom, we should do something to celebrate that the Song of Songs was one of the favorite books for the medieval church. The Psalms, the Gospels, and the Song of Songs. And that celibate monks, monks who would never uh, have uh, intimate uh, relationships with, with man or woman, that these people wrote the Song of Songs by hand in the monasteries so that elsewhere, people who were 
healthy heterosexuals would know that God had ordained physical love. So we thought that we'll put up desks and we'll have a blotter and an inkwell and an ink pen. And if people sit at any of these desks, somebody who's in charge will give them a verse from the Song of Songs. It might be, many waters cannot quench love. It might be, my beloved has thighs of alabaster. And they will take the ink pen and on a small piece of card in their best writing will write this and remember how in this place, in this abbey, celibate monks wrote these texts so that people who were in intimate, committed relationships would know that God had ordained physical pleasure. I said, well, that's, that's very good. And, and Graham says, and, and we'll have a bed. I said, oh, no, wait a minute. No, 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 he says, well, we'll have a bed. I said, no, 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 no. I said, you know, I said, okay, the people who are with us, you know, at the conference, they they know what you're like, but there's other people who come in, they'll have no idea. They'll wonder what this is. I said, no, we'll have a bed. So it was two against one, and they got a double bed, and they put it just in front of the altar and covered it with a a silk, a red silk uh, cover. Beautiful. And then at the side of the bed, they put two candle stands and indicated that if people wanted to thank God for the intimacy they had enjoyed with those whom they loved, they might light a candle. All through the hour, people could go all around the church and into the cloisters. There were lots of things to do or look at or read or listen or engage in. All through the hour, people lined up, some of them with tears in their eyes, lighting a candle to thank God for the intimacy they had enjoyed. And some people went and touched the bed as they left. And three days later, I got this letter from a woman in Cambridge who said, um, Dear John, I was at that service, that service, and I just wanted to say, I go to a Pentecostal church, we don't light candles. But I remembered that my husband had died two years ago. We had had 35 years of blissful wedded life. We had three daughters who are all healthy and, and still in the Christian faith. And I had never thanked God for the intimacy which my husband and I enjoyed. So I lit two candles, one for my own marriage and one for my mother and father who conceived me, who was able to light this candle for them. Now that's just an image of a different kind of way of using liturgical space in which people are alerted in a different way to the beauty of God and those whom God made in his image. Here I stop. And uh, later on in the afternoon, if there's anything from this morning of what I've said that needs to be questioned or commented on, we'll do that when we come back at one. That was brilliant, wasn't it? Did you enjoy that? Excellent. But wait, there's more. So... uh...